About Empathy is a podcast about patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. This podcast gives voice to their stories. With each episode, we hope these engaging discussions inspire you to have more empathic, authentic, and compassionate conversations. I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani, and I'm here with my co-hosts. Dr. Jory Sekaracha. And I'm Dr. Irene Yang. For years, we've worked together, taught together, and learned from each other in our roles as palliative care physicians. Thank you for listening. We're happy to welcome Brian Smith to the podcast today. In 2022, his life was suddenly disrupted by a diagnosis of metastatic cancer and months of subsequent treatment with both chemotherapy and radiation. Despite this, he held closely to his core values, drawing on his life experiences and supports to help him through that experience. I want to let our listeners know a little bit about Brian. Leaving Canada at 19 to live in London, Brian began the journey of stepping beyond comfort. The phrase aim high, land higher became and remains one of Brian's core drivers. He has lived a full life of consistently and often unwittingly expanding his own horizon in small and large ways. In his 20s, he traveled to many cities in his career with British Airways, then founding his own design business and subsequently working for a global financial services conglomerate. Brian relocated to Toronto in 2001 to be a caregiver for his aging parents. After their loss, the weight of clinical depression and grief was debilitating. Diagnosed with onset of blindness in his 50s, that pushed him to a fresh career as a professional charity fundraiser. In 2011, he met his partner, Augustine, and he discovered that their life passions, sense of wonder and gratitude were mirrored in each other and their adventures together continue. I had the opportunity to meet Brian at Sunnybrook's Odette Cancer Center, and I look forward to our listeners hearing more about him. Welcome, Brian. Thanks very much for asking me. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you. Brian, can you share with us what it was like for you when you were diagnosed with cancer? I'm one of those people who is pretty willful. That's how I've learned to navigate to the point where I've got to in my life. And I don't like to use the word control freak, but it would be applied to me, I guess. <laughs> there might even be a three-letter acronym that would apply to me too. And it seems so wildly out of context. It wasn't anywhere on my horizon mm. and certainly not in my overarching game plan. As I'm sure it is for many people, it was a complete bolt out of the blue. Struck me to the core. Yeah, so blindsided. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. And very early on, even before you started treatment, you were referred to palliative care. So how did you feel about that? How did you react to that referral? It was a bizarre kind of blessing, I think, that with all of the doubt and the uncertainty that there was an opportunity for early engagement, that it started to give me some comfort because I felt that I was being engaged with, that I was the person, that I was no longer just a name on a waiting list. And although it was pretty traumatic to end up in that kind of care, and I certainly balked at the word palliative because I associated with the, mm -hmm. you know, the negative. But once I realized how much value there was in it, I absolutely ran at it. I probably overwhelmed people with my gratitude, thinking, thank God you've seen me. You know, thank God you're aware of me, that somehow 
all of the professional support at Odette had started to mask in my direction. That's how I felt. I felt incredibly reassured, Mm -hmm. frightened, Mm -hmm. like everyone, but reassured. It sounds like an initial fearfulness that then maybe subsided a little bit. So still that that worry about the cancer diagnosis, but some fearfulness that might have been diminished. Yeah, I think the grave uncertainty that was presented was overwhelming for me. And I know that I'm not alone because there must be hundreds of thousands of people around the world who hear those words Mm. every day. Mm -hmm. And it made me humble. It made me realize that I'm not even alone in that collective mass. You know, that I I didn't hear anything different to many, many, many people. Mm. But I was also aware that my journey was unique and that I was going to be embraced in a professional manner. Brian, can I ask you, what was it that the team did that was able to make you feel so reassured? I, I relate to structure. I process chaos, but I deal with structure better. I find that that's my go-to zone. So I found even my first meeting at Odette as awful as it was, and I don't pretend for a second that it didn't terrify me, that just being included in those surroundings, I looked at all of the people in the building and I thought, my God, you're all here for one reason today. You're only here to either get better or to be helped to be better. And being an information hound, I grabbed every brochure that I could find, every leaflet, every takeaway. And one of the best things happened was that I absorbed what facilities were available to me. We acted on it that afternoon. We actually took up one of these support systems before we left the building. So all of a sudden, in that wild uncertainty, there was a certainty that somebody cared enough to put something in place that would help us. Brian, I was just thinking from Giovanna's introduction, she mentioned that you went through different treatments for your cancer. Were there challenges specifically with the treatments and how palliative care was able to help? Thinking of the chemo radiation. Yeah, I was blindly unaware of the effects. I read the brochure, but I couldn't relate to them because it was something I'd never experienced. And so I had this, this void of expectation. It listed, for me, there was a whole shopping list of things which could and may not happen. And although I absorbed them, I parked them all because I realized I might not have all of the effects. I might not feel all those things. But that if I did feel them, they're recognizable. That's okay. Again, I'm not the first one to feel nausea, the first one to feel discomfort or a burned skin sensation, which I thought was bizarre until somebody pointed out to me it did look like I'd been sitting in the sun too long. So... I didn't have any expectations and I found it oddly reassuring that what I'd been told actually came about. What I'd been warned about was true. I think that was my comfort there. That's a very, very interesting approach. Very unique. I don't think I've heard patients explain it that way. I think that's a wonderful way to think about it. 
How did you feel, Brian, during treatment? Was it hard on you mentally, physically? What was that like? I try to approach with an open mind Mm. and I absolutely was prepared for the worst. Mm. I read that list and I absorbed everything Mm. and I thought, I'm going to have 10 out of 10 Mm. (laughs) symptoms. I'm going to experience everything Mm. when in fact, I learned to roll with it. Mm. And the changes that I found were expected. There wasn't a surprise there. Mm. But I also have to say that when they weren't on my immediate horizon and the symptom of treatment happening to me, I parked it so well that I even, not disregarded it, but just chose to overlook it. I thought that hasn't happened yet. I'm not going to be absorbed with the potential that it might arise. Mm. So it came as a a bit of a shock when I started throwing up. It was, and worse, it was in the car on the way into a debt center. We were 10 minutes away. We'd just gone grocery shopping. And the only place that I had to throw up was into the grocery bag in the car. Mm. And I somehow just went, okay, well, there's a new symptom that I didn't have before. Mm -hmm. Sorry about the car. Sorry about the groceries. You know, I've got to get out and get on with this. And mm. I guess that was the, the way that I processed everything. Mm-hmm. How has being diagnosed with cancer changed your outlook on life? Has it changed your outlook on life? Absolutely. 101%. I can't understate how I've had this sea change. And in many ways, it's good. I, I don't want to underplay the positivity of the change which may sound a bit perverse or unusual, but absolutely life-changed, pivoted. It was the inflection point in my life. Can you say how? I tell people that I used to live very much on the edge. I grew up in the 70s. I was in my teens in the 70s. Saturday Night Fever, you know, came out. I was wearing a white suit at the disco. I lived life very much on the edge. We used to say there wasn't a chandelier in the room that was safe if I was partying. (laughs) (laughs) And it actually did happen once, but it's okay. It was a strong chandelier. (laughs) Not to be tested too often. And all of a sudden, I had to deal with something I knew was always on the horizon. I always sensed that at some point I would understand things that I didn't know. That I would understand that things would change. Mm. That the unpredictable way that I had gone through my life, as much as I tried to control it, would be taken away from me. Mm. And in many ways, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. And I can't underplay that, that all of a sudden things made sense, that I always knew I could never control the outcome of things. But all of a sudden, everything went on a tangent that was so unpredictable. And I had to say, okay, I guess all my life I've been preparing for news of whatever kind. And Agustin and I said, there is a silver lining. Mm. 
that we know where the path is taking us. Mm. And I had to realize that the time in front of me was far less long than I imagined it would be, and that it became a point of awakening. Brian, to build on that, in our conversations, I always found it interesting how, for you, living with cancer seemed to expand your life rather than constrict it. So some of the things you had talked to me about was moving ahead with building your dream home and planning your wedding. How and why did you decide to take that approach or was it not a decision? Did it just kind of come naturally to say, we want to do these things and we're going to do them? It's a tricky question with a couple Mm. of turns in it. I learned a long time ago through trial and error that whatever we encounter in life, whatever experience that affects us emotionally, I could choose to walk in the shadows on one side of the street or I could choose to walk in the sun on the other side of the street Hmm. and never has that been more true than at the moment that I learned that we had a challenge that we'd never imagined would come and we it's a family situation and i include mm-hmm. everyone i know in that family including my doctors i i use the collective we and you joined that family you led the family from the pain management side mm-hmm. that i needed to see there was something that was good in it absolutely horribly wrong in some ways, but there had to be some aspect that I could hold on to and say, no, this is positive. I get to reset a lot of my expectations. Mm -hmm. And we had plans, always had plans of, oh, and then we'll, and then we'll do so-and-so, and then we'll achieve this. It's been complained about me that I'm an overachiever, And in many ways, I've underachieved on a lot of things, but a lot of people have been fooled into thinking that I was better than maybe I was. So all of the dreams in our horizon came back into focus almost immediately. And I think that must be something which others feel too, which is, but what about my dream? Mm. What about what I planned to do? What about what was expected to come? And we made a shopping list and said what's important and what's not important. And we got engaged seven years ago and forever put it off. No, it wasn't the right time. I was involved in another venture. It wasn't good timing. We loved our summers so much that we didn't want it ruined and and encroached on by preparing for a wedding. All of those things, it was oh, we've got some land for the forever home. Someday we'll build it. And all Mm. of a sudden, forever wasn't forever. It Mm. was finite. And Mm. it was the trigger to say, if I'm going to achieve anything in the remainder of my life, I needed to just get on with it, that there wasn't an option anymore. Mm. I couldn't just shelve things. If I was going to do it, I had to do it now. Mm. And in many ways that has been one of the silver linings. 
Thank you for sharing that very personal experience. I'm seeing this image of you creating the list with Augustine of what are the things we want to do. So thank you for sharing that. Brian, you know, just listening to you, you're such an inspiration. I mean, not just with this cancer diagnosis, but how you have managed to turn, you know, challenges into opportunities. I think at uh, many points in your life, you know, for our listeners and even for us, you know, is there some advice you can give us on how you managed to make that happen? That's the $64,000 question. (laughs) I realized that there are things that I can control absolutely are directly within my control. Nobody else can Mm. make my decisions for me. Nobody else can move forward or backward. Those are the things that are in my control. And there are other things that are completely out of my control. I believe in a higher power, but I can't put a name to an entity. I just believe that there's some order out there. I don't know what the order is, and I don't know where that order will take me. But I have to look at things and say, is there anything I can do about this? Mm. And when I can't, I quickly put it to the side as much as I can and refocus on the things that I know that I can influence and that I can do. And I can promise you and you as professionals in the industry and and I imagine quite a few of your listeners realize there's so much uncertainty about that diagnosis. You hear of Mm. amazing success stories where people are able to come through it with flying colors and live the rest of their life to an old age. There's a lot of stories that don't have that kind of ending and the ending is more abrupt and more traumatic And I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't know what that is going to be, and I can't prejudge it. I have to turn myself open to the uncertainty that I don't know what I don't know. And I found some comfort in that. Hmm. I found comfort in not knowing. I went, okay, I don't know that. But I am embraced by professionals who have a good sense of what is happening and the way it can play out. And I learned to ask some questions that I needed answers to. And I also realized that there's some questions that I don't want to ask. Mm. And those were my choices. I didn't have to ask about mortality. I didn't have to ask about percentages. But I could ask about positive outcomes. I promise you, I learned about some of the negative ones as they transpired, like throwing up in the car. Mm -hmm. Even now I can laugh about it was the amusement, which is, gosh, this is so out of my control. I felt fine a minute ago and now I'm feeling absolutely wretched. But I had a choice to walk in the shadow going into a debt or I chose to find the sun as I went through the door. And I thought, Mm. it's okay. This was not unexpected. It just wasn't planned. And I got a chance to reframe that moment immediately. And it was not great. Mm. Didn't plan this. How are we going to resolve it? And I was able to step forward with a little bit more comfort Mm. than if I'd gone in thinking otherwise. That's an empowering message for anyone who's going through that illness experience. That idea of recognizing there is a lot of uncertainty 
and owning that there is uncertainty, but there are things that I can control and decisions I can make. And so I think that will give people something to hold on to, that it's not all uncertain, that there's some aspects that are under your control. How do you figure out what those things are and how do you, you know, put that into motion for yourself? I think that's an empowering message. It's also very empowering when you talked about how you were able to reframe things. And I'm curious, do the relationships in your life help you to find that ability to reframe things? Like, are there supports that made that possible at times? I found it has become almost a 24-hour-a-day evolution. I need to reframe almost every day. Okay. And the people around me have come to expect reframing every day with all of the certainty of my outlook, my personal outlook that I know that I can control generally how I respond to things. There are going to be things that arise that we all have to deal with. We didn't want to hear that we all had to realize won't happen that my, I don't ever call it my bucket list because I don't believe it's either a bucket or a list that it's just, you know, my dreams and our opportunities and our dreams that I won't get to them all, but I absolutely will get to at least one and I can wake up and be grateful Mm -hmm. and I can be grateful for those people I know who are around me, who love me the most, Augustine, our family, Mm -hmm. but also Everyone has to reframe constantly. Nobody knows what's coming, Mm -hmm. including the specialists, I think. Mm -hmm. I had a meeting last week and it started off with, well, we've got some good news and we've got some not so good news. I realized they were reframing in that conversation Mm -hmm. at that minute. And I had to trust them that they would reframe in a way that I could relate to. And they did. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. This doctor at Odette Mm -hmm. took enough time and interest and professional experience to say, I think I know a little about Brian and Augustine and his family, and I'm going to be forthright about everything Mm -hmm. when I'm asked. I'm going to deal with things professionally and dispassionately. But I knew when she looked at me, she understood me that she knew not only what I was hearing was not what I wanted to hear at all. I wanted the meeting to be, oh, we've got great news. And it came as a shock when she said the bad news. And she gave me the opportunity to hear the good news or the bad news Mm -hmm. first. Even that choice was empowering because I thought, no, I can control this. She's giving me control in a situation which is wildly out of my control. And I'm one of those people that I would say, let's get the negative out of the way first. And then I'll think mm-hmm. about the positive. And for one of the first times in my life, I allowed myself to think, sunny side of the street, I want to hear the good news. I want to hear what good you've got to tell me because I need to hear that and hold on to that. Mm-hmm. And The other stuff, I'm going to hear the negative and I'll have to deal with that too. But I chose to hear the good one first. And that's Mm. so unlike my character. I've always confronted negativity Mm. and demons and everything head on. And I've almost even tried to brave out negative comments and say, oh yeah, no, well, that's all right. I expected that would be negative. But I thought, I'm out of control here. This is not my comfort zone anymore. I want to see the sun. And I was given really good news. 
I knew in hearing the good news that there would be a counterpoint. And mm-hmm. absolutely, there was a counterpoint. And we're now dealing with that part too. Okay. So Brian, as we you know wrap up our conversation, we ask our guests to finish the statement if only they knew. And I think for you, my question is, what do you want healthcare providers to know about working with patients who have a serious illness? You know, if only they knew what about communication skills or your experience to help improve that illness experience for patients. I've been lucky enough to find myself in a very supportive environment at Odette. And there's nothing that I feel that I've come across that somebody didn't already know. Mm. But I feel that I've been blessed with the people who I've ended up with on my team. But I think that if there's anything that I would want to surface, however negative it is, and it is catastrophic for many people, that there is a silver lining and don't minimize that. Don't rush past that opportunity to surface the silver lining if the person is open to hearing it. Mm. And just knowing that I have one of our doctors understand that I needed to hear good and I needed to see a silver lining, that that was the point in my treatment that they found was the right time to discuss it. Mm. There's other things we haven't discussed, and I absolutely don't want to go there in some ways. Mm. I know that there's things that we don't want to hear, but I want people to be honest, but I found that having a a hypersensitive approach, which is what I found with everyone I've come into contact with, having a hypersensitivity to the nuance of treatment was a gift. And I would hope that in any given situation that that sensitivity needs to be called on. Nothing is black and white. I'm surrounded by gray. I don't know the answers in the gray, but through that one crack in the cloud that day, somebody found a way to give me good news Mm. and to give Mm. me some sunshine. And that sustains me right now, Mm. sustains me in this conversation that I believe that somebody saw me. Mm. Thank you, Brian. So what I'm hearing is there was hope. There was a discussion about you know, what elements of hope there are in the current situation and also seeing you as a person and as a whole person and what's what's important to you and gearing the conversation towards that. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences yeah. with us today. And, you know, we wish you well and wish you good health as you face the next steps in your journey and treatment. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. And I have to say it, it's great work, great work that you do. Thank you. You're listening to About Empathy. This season of About Empathy has been funded by the Gold Define Award through the Temi Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. The Temi Latner Center for Palliative Care's vision is to allow patients and their families to experience a seamless system of caring through the embodiment of its core values of humanity, collaboration, innovation, and communication. To learn more, visit tlcpc.org. Welcome back to About Empathy. Dorian, I mean, there was so much to learn from our conversation with Brian. I think so much of what he talked about is 
you know, what we practice in palliative care and what we teach in palliative care. What stood out for both of you in, in that conversation? Gosh, there were so many inspiring messages, but something that really stood out for me was the way he talked about living with uncertainty and the way he talked about trying to figure out what's in our control and what isn't in our control. And I have to say that in my counseling for palliative care Mm -hmm. patients, that was something I spoke about a lot with patients. The idea that living with uncertainty is so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And for many people, and I think all of us, we try to pretend that we know what's coming in the future. Mm -hmm. We have our day structured and we expect it to go the way it is. And when someone is faced with a cancer diagnosis or some bad news, they really do have their world just completely turn on a dime. And that uncertainty causes a great deal of distress. And trying to find a way to be comfortable with the uncertainty because having cancer and going through treatment is full of uncertainty as Brian expressed. I thought he did a beautiful way of talking about that and I think we as physicians have to also learn as palliative care physicians for sure. We're also often living with uncertainty. We can't fix things. When we go to meet a patient, it's not cookie cutter recipes many times. It's so unknowable and we're trying things, but we know that it's uncertain whether it's going to work and trying to convey that to the patient and help them to find comfort in that and also our own comfort because we're not Mm -hmm. sure it's going to work. I just found that part very powerful Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. So Dorian, your practice, how did you help patients navigate the uncertainty? You know, what were some strategies or some tools that you used to help with that? Because I think it would be applicable for, you know, a lot of our listeners. I think even naming it would make Mm. patients go, yeah, like Mm. they would have an aha moment of, yeah, that has been causing me a lot of distress not knowing. And many of them would often tell you, I got some bad news today, but at least I now know what I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. And we would talk about why perhaps that almost feels a bit better or they have some relief and it's because some of the uncertainty Mm -hmm. was taken away. Mm -hmm. And that idea of how much distress they do feel sometimes when they feel uncertain and that that's normal, that uncertainty causes us some anxiety. And then, you know, in counseling, you would talk about ways of coping with that, whether it's talking to someone, some cognitive strategies to go through the anxiety process, all those things. And our patients, even who do well, They have a CT scan coming up every year because they've survived. Like this is a big survivorship issue, right? The uncertainty of what's coming next. And many people recognize that they always lived with uncertainty, but they didn't notice it as much because they weren't such big issues in their life. It's amplified if you have a serious illness diagnosis or a cancer diagnosis. And just naming it for them. Mm. And the one looking back in their life saying in their career, depending what somebody did, I mean, there's some people that come to my mind that they had jobs where they're so effective Mm. and they really did feel like they had a lot of control and they could take away a lot of uncertainty and how good that felt. And that 
what worked in their job doesn't work necessarily mm. when you get diagnosed with cancer. And just hearing that and learning to reframe it. And another great thing, Brian talked about the idea of reframing, helping people to reframe it and look at it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, speaking of not cookie cutter, I think Brian is very unique in that way that he is able to reframe because that is a skill like you have to work on that Mm -hmm. I was so impressed with his ability to sort of like find the silver lining in everything and Mm -hmm. using that as his approach Mm -hmm. and I think it's a good example of knowing your patient and their personality and the way they approach things because he liked the reframing approach and the you know silver lining approach which you know, when it works for you is amazing for patients who may not necessarily have that skill set, or if their personality doesn't necessarily lean that way, you have to be very careful because Mm. using that approach can actually backfire, you know, like using potentially what might be viewed as premature reassurance or maybe perceived as downplaying something. And so, I think that's where sort of understanding your patient's preferences, their preferences around what they want to know, information provision, and just general personality, where it will alter the way that you present information. It's it's not cookie cutter. It's not the same for everybody. Mm. And I think Brian described that really well when he talked about some recent news that he got. And in that conversation with his oncologist, he talked about how He appreciated the question around how he wanted to hear that news and that I think number one, speaking of control, that the locus of control was back with him in terms of how he wanted that news delivered. And he also, I think from his perspective, he also surprised himself in terms of how he wanted that news. You know, usually he would want to hear the bad news first so he could start planning, but he, you know, wanted to hear the good news this time because he wanted to, like he described it, walking on the sunny side of the street. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a helpful point for healthcare providers. It's an important reminder. I think it's something we learn, but I feel like it's something we forget maybe in our rush to provide information or to deliver news that we may get kind of right to the point without checking in with a patient to get a sense of, you know, what do you want to know and how? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had the impression in speaking with him that despite knowing, being very, very knowledgeable about his disease and what's going on and making life decisions as a result of it, that there were a lot of things that he didn't want to know explicitly. I mean, I was kind of reading in between the lines there, perhaps prognosis. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's another interesting point to tease out that you may assume based on how someone is presenting that he's the type of person who wants to know everything and wants to be as informed as possible, but you still need to ensure that element of control is with the patient if that's what they want. And to be sure like, hey, do you want to talk about this? Is there anything that's off limits? that you don't want me to talk about, that would be helpful to not to make assumptions around what patients want to hear. That's a good point. Brian also talked about hope. This relates to the silver linings piece and communicating information. But I think that hope is an important piece. I think in palliative care, oftentimes there's a concern that number one, even, you know, referring someone to palliative care or going to visit them or see them as a palliative care physician, that that is, you know, equated with taking away mm-hmm. hope from a person. And I think so much of, of what we do and how we do it has to do with that piece around trying to find elements of hope or things to be hopeful for, mm-hmm. even in the setting of a serious illness or a diagnosis that's life-limiting. 
I think that's a lot of what we do. So I wonder, you know, from your perspectives, how do you help people find that hope or support them in that conversation or facilitating, you know, a way of finding hope in the midst of something that's life altering? It's tricky because when you have a patient so articulate like Brian and a personality that seems to be able to look at that aspect, that It's not easy, but I think Mm -hmm. it's possible. I think there are times with some patients where they may not be able to get there. And I'd want our learners to know it's not a failure if we can't Mm -hmm. go on that journey with the patient and they can't get there. Mm -hmm. That is not possible for everyone, but we want to give them the opportunity. And I would do it by in practice trying to ask, I know what's out of your control right now, but what's in your control? Mm -hmm. And when you talk about what's in someone's control, they start to talk about what's possible. And then if you talk about what's possible, perhaps they find some hope, but hope's a a complex concept, Mm -hmm. especially in palliative care. Like you already mentioned, Giovanna, they'll tell us, don't take away my loved one's hope by Mm -hmm you know, breaking bad news or Mm. being honest when you answer. We're always on a tightrope of talking about challenging issues and not wanting to rob people of hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, Brian did it brilliantly. Again, he talked about reframing. So when you reframe what's in your control, there is something that's hopeful, like I might get to my daughter's next birthday party. My grandson's getting married, Mm -hmm. whatever it is for somebody. So we have to really listen for that, Mm -hmm. but not impose it because not everybody is ready. Exactly. You don't want to make the patient feel bad if they can't get there. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking is this idea of it's not for the healthcare provider to define what hope is for a person, Mm -hmm. that it's more about facilitating the conversation around, is there something you're looking forward to? Is there something you're still hopeful for? For I think that's such an important point Mm -hmm. uh, because it's not for us to decide or to impose hope. Right. I have a confession. Mm -hmm. I'm a palliative care physician and I have to admit that I I always found the concept of hope very overwhelming mm. yeah, and not particularly helpful for me mm. on a day-to-day basis in mm. my practice. Maybe I'm not doing mm-hmm. it right. But for me, I find the question in my mind is how do I help my patient find meaning and purpose? Like mm. I find that question in my mind far mm. more practically applicable mm-hmm. for me when I'm like talking to patients because I feel like finding meaning and purpose, I don't know, there's something about it that just feels yeah. more like material and substantial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you do that, Irene, in practice? Sometimes I'll just start with like the quality of life question is a big one. Like what brings joy to your life mm. and trying to expand on that. Sometimes if it goes into the fear of that existential kind of fear around like death and like leaving people behind and meaning of life, then more exploring that piece around like legacy building. Mm. What message do you want to leave for the people that you love Mm. and ways to achieve that? I know we've spoken about that in previous episodes before as well, but I just, for me, I'm like very much like the type of personality where I like more like concrete things. And Mm -hmm. I, I feel like that kind of thinking for me is helpful. Mm. I don't see that as separate. I don't see hope and discussions about finding meaning. Oh yeah, they're probably all interrelated. Yeah, so interrelated. And I think they overlap. I I don't think they're ends of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. I I feel like there's 
there's a connection there. It's not the word I would ever bring up with mm. patients. Mm. We want to ask the kind of questions that will allow them to talk about meaning, purpose, if they do have hopes. I think that that's sort of the communication skill of palliative care, right? And just mm. really making them comfortable enough that they'll share with you whatever is going on and not having the expectation as professionals that we can get everybody to that place where they are not okay with but somehow settled with what's happening mm -hmm. sometimes patients just cannot ever get there we all yeah. want that for our patients and we all feel so awful when we can't mm -hmm. get some of that and I think that's important for learners to know as well. But the important is we keep trying. Yeah. Every time you plant seeds mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. try. What you're saying, Dory, it's not a failure on the part of the healthcare provider. It's not a failure. If you're not able to help alleviate the distress. And it's not a failure of the patient. Exactly. exactly. That's very important too. Mm -hmm. The conversation that we had with Brian today was enlightening. I feel like there oh, was yeah. so many points that he brought up that, you know, once again are learning points for us. And I feel like I'm always learning from everybody we talk to. So thanks, yeah. Dory and Irene, for your insights today. And thanks to Brian for his openness. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is much to be learned in the stories of the people we care for and work with. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic conversations. We'll be back next week with another story. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. Each episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sekaraccia, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner and Sarah May. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded virtually and funded by the Gold of Fine Award, through the Temi Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.